today's scripture comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, For those of you who are here physically, and for those of you joining us uh, through our live stream, it's, I can't see you, but... I know you're there, so we're glad to have, have you with us digitally as well. I just, I just want to say a word briefly as we begin. Uh, there's a lot of ambiguity surrounding uh, different policies, and uh, I'm not here to speak to the policies or the ambiguity that surrounds them. Uh, I just want to say this as a pastor, like uh, there are some people here who have greater restrictions than you do. So I just want to encourage you to keep that in mind. You, want, you may want to go greet somebody enthusiastically, shake their hand or hug them or something like that. And that's fantastic. We're just in a weird season where you got to ask if that's okay first, just, you know, out of respect, just make sure it's okay that you come in close for the hug and, or the handshake. And, and for some of you, I know you've got to maintain that six feet and you're not supposed to have any physical contact or proximity to people that you're, you're not related to. So let's just be sensitive to that as a family. Um, and we'll, we'll keep persevering through this strange season together. Let's pray. And then we'll get right down to work this morning. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We just want to confess our our need. Uh, We are your children, like we just sang. And as kids, we're just just needy people. We need you, and we need every good thing from you. Uh, We forget that. We think that we can find what we need in other people or other places. We've all been guilty of that this week. But Father, we thank you that uh, you're, you're there you're always present. You've not gone anywhere even when we've wandered. And as we sang in that song, we want to pray now that you would pour out your spirit on the broken. And we would just ask that you would give us enough humility to admit that every one of us has brokenness within us. So we're, as we sing that and praying it, we're praying that you would pour your spirit out on us. Uh, you alone can heal. You alone can do what's necessary in my soul and in the soul of every person here this morning. So we pray that you would do that work by your grace and through your spirit for our good, for the good of our family, for the good of those who are not yet adopted into this family through Jesus, and for your fame. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so our series theme continues to be gospel form. Not for much longer. We're almost done with 1 Corinthians, and then we'll be pressing on to other things. But for now, for just a few more weeks, our series theme is gospel formed, becoming who we are, a united family in a fractured city. So God rescues us. He adopts us into a family. He says, this is true about you, family. You are loved and forever kept, and um, I'm I'm, I'm forming, I am... 
reflecting myself through you. I'm, I'm, I'm growing you up into the kids that you, into the family that you're created to be. But we have a long way to grow, right? So as we are gospel formed, we are becoming who our Father already says that we are as a family. And we become, here's what we'll see this morning about that growth. We become who we are, a united family in a fractured city, as God's love for us leads me to increasingly reject my self-centered spirituality for others-oriented, self-sacrificing expressions. Uh, I like grammar. I'm not the strongest grammar guy, but I do like grammar. And I, I did this last week. I don't even know if it's grammatically correct, but I do it for emphasis, and I did it again this week. Notice we begin with we, right? A plural pronoun. We together become who we are. And then I shift it halfway through the sentence to just singular. Is that even grammatically okay? Does that bother you, some of, some of you? Good. All right, good. Okay, just a little bit. But that's on purpose, right? Like, we become who we are as every one of us in this room take ownership of our own peace. So we will become who we are as a family as I, John Ransom, increasingly rejects my own self-centered spirituality. Not yours, not yours, but mine, my own, right? And here's how the text will break down this week. From verses 1 to 3, we'll see that self-centered spirituality leads me to nothing and leaves me as nothing. Leaves me as nothing. From verses 4 to 7, we'll see that others-oriented spirituality is rooted in and shaped by God's love for me. It doesn't originate with us. It originates with God uh, through his spirit. So we'll see that. And then from verses 8 to 13, what we'll see is love never ends. But our gifts will. The gifts that the Spirit has given us for the common good, they will come to an end. Love never will. And so the, the challenge will be to focus on that which will endure. Now, if that's too wordy for you, maybe it is. Here's, here's a different set of three to kind of help us remember the, the outline of this passage. No love, no good thing. Don't expect any good thing in the absence or the deficiency of love. No love, no good thing. Number two, God's love every good thing. God's love is the source of every good thing that will happen in this family. So either we will be formed by his love and experience those good things, or we won't, and we won't know any of those good things. And then again, third, gifts are temporary. Love is forever. So a little recap of last week. Last week was a fun chapter. What we saw in that chapter is God the Father and God the Son together give us the life-giving and empowering presence of the Spirit. That's really our first gift in the family. They, the Father and the Son together give us the presence of the Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit gives us the gift of faith, his first gift to us. He opens our eyes to see Jesus for who he is. That's really our first gift, and in the opening of our eyes to see Jesus uh, for who he is, we are given this gift of belief, to see and believe, to hear and receive. And that gift will express itself as allegiance to Jesus, right? Before I was loyal to myself or I was loyal to whatever worldview, whatever my allegiance was to. Now, because of the Holy Spirit's gift to my heart, the first evidence of that is a is a reorientation of my allegiance or my loyalty, but not only my loyalty, but my affections. I now have a love for Jesus that was not there before. So the evidence that the Spirit has given me this gift of life is there will be a newfound allegiance to Jesus, loyalty, and a newfound affection or love for, for Jesus, and they'll be small. They'll be really weak. They'll be like sparks. You're just trying to, to fan sparks into a flame. They'll be very weak, and then over time, the Spirit causes both of those things to grow in my life. Slowly growing, though, right? Slowly growing. And lots of days where it probably feels like the wind is going to extinguish those little flames. That's the work of the gospel, slow and methodical. And then, after the Spirit gives me those gifts, I spend a lifetime of receiving gifts from the Spirit. He gives gifts. He just he gives and he gives and he gives. And we call those, from the text last week, we call those spiritual gifts. Remember, spiritual just means from the Spirit. So we're all spiritual. We're all really messy, but we're all spiritual. And so we receive these spiritual gifts from him. Remember last week we used this short definition of spiritual gifts from Sam Storms. Spiritual gifts are God present in, with, and through my thoughts, my deeds, my words, and my love. So remember we have to reject this idea that spiritual gifts are these things that we get 
kind of separate from God or independent from him. Spiritual gifts are God's presence in us and what, what the Spirit does in us and through us for the common good of other people, right? So it's his presence, really. We saw a representative list last week of spiritual gifts. This list causes some of you to be uncomfortable, and for some of you, depending on your background, you wish that we would talk about these, this list uh, even more. So we saw um, utterance of wisdom, or we could say word of wisdom, word of knowledge. We saw the gift of faith, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles, the gift of prophecy, uh, the gift of discernment between spirits and the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues. We defined each of those last week, so I'm not going to redefine them today. And then next week, again, in chapter 14, we'll focus in on tongues and prophecy. For those of you that want to do the deep dive, we'll be there next week. So that was the representative list. But remember, it's not exhaustive. There are lots more gifts all throughout the, uh, the New Testament that we see. And so we ask this question from the text, why are these gifts and the other gifts given to us as God's family? Why are they given to us? What's the answer to that question? You know you're going to quiz this morning, huh? For the common good, right. Not for my good, not for my, not my glory, right? For the family's good, for the common good. And so when we say common good, like it's for the father's family, our good, but also common would include those outside the family who are not yet adopted in. That's why the spirit works through us and gives us these gifts. And so from that, we realized, look, I need a church. I need to be robustly involved in a church because it's where the Holy Spirit works for my good. And the church needs you. Like the church needs me present here because the Holy Spirit works not like arbitrarily and mystically apart from his family, but through his family for our good. So I need to be present uh, to be giving and I need to be present in order to be receiving. But sadly, in Corinth, the church that Paul wrote to, gifts were not being used for the common good. Rather, they were being used, here's a couple different ways they were being used. We see this in the text. They were being used for confirmation. In other words, you speak in tongues, you're a Christian. Man, dog, you haven't spoken in tongues yet? Ah, you may not actually be a Christian. You should really, really, recon you may not be, right? You won't be until you prophesy. You can give a word of prophecy. That's not God's intent for his gifts for the family at all, right? So it was being used as a means of confirming a profession of faith. Guys, that's anti-gospel. That's, that's, that's anti-gospel. So confirmation. Um, also for comparison, right? Comparison of spirituality. Like, man... He's really spiritual. Look at the way he gives this word of wisdom. Or man, she's really spiritual. Look at the faith that she has. And so it becomes this comparative spirituality. That's anti-gospel. Becomes a competition. That's anti-gospel. And then it becomes a source of controversy, which we agreed last week. It still is for us. We argue more about the gifts than we actually um, embrace and practice them for the common good. And so what was meant to be others-oriented had become self-centered and loveless. That's the problem in the church in Corinth. And that's why Paul concluded chapter 12 last week with this verse, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 31. He said, guys, I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. And so chapter 13, what we'll see today, chapter 13 is that more excellent way that he wants to show them. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to work to confront their self-centered spirituality and guys, they needed to be confronted. They needed to see a more excellent way. But guys, here's where we just need to stop for a moment. They're not the only ones who need that. You and I need to be confronted in our self-centered spirituality too. Like, I need this this morning. I've needed it all week. We need it as a family. Our spirituality is very often self-centered in ways that we're not even aware of very often self-centered in ways we don't even know. So we need to be confronted. So here's our big idea one more time, just so we remember where we're going. We become who we are, a united family in a fractured city when God's love for us leads us to increasingly reject my own self-centered spirituality for others-oriented self-sacrificing expressions. All right, here we go. Number one. 
Self-centered spirituality leads me to nothing and leaves me as nothing. That's what we see in verses one to three. No love, no good thing. Now there are, there are three things we need to do with this first portion of the text. Three things right here. Here's the first thing we need to do. We need to admit that my, uh, we need to admit my need to personalize this and own it, right? Every one of us need to personalize this and own it. Look, Paul, Paul does that for himself. He personalizes it and owns it. And, and what he's doing is leading us to, f- to follow his example and do the same thing. Look at verse one. He, he's, not, he's not saying, guys, if you speak and you don't have love and you are something, he's not saying if you have prophetic powers and you have all faith and you don't have love, you are something. He's not saying if you give everything away and you deliver up your body to be burned and you don't have love, you are something. What's he actually saying? I. He's personalizing this. He's owning it. If I speak in tongues, the tongues of men or the tongues of angels, and I don't have any love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all the gifts like this, and if I have all faith, but I don't have love, look at what he actually says about him, the essence of who he is as a person. I am nothing. And if I give everything I have away, if I'm sacrificial and I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Guys, if this passage is going to have the intended effect on us, then I have to admit my need to personalize and own this. This passage is not about someone else right now. It's about you. And it's about me. This is about me. This is our Father saying to you in this quiet moment, Son, you tend toward a self-centered spirituality. Daughter, you tend toward a self-centered spirituality. We gotta personalize this and own it. The second thing we need to do with this text is admit my need to let Paul come at my preferred gift. We all have a preferred gift or expression of spirituality. We need to let Paul come at it the way he's coming at theirs. Uh, look, we, we learned last week that tongues was their preferred gift. That's what we learned. We'll see it again next week more clearly in chapter 14. And did you notice Paul lists it here on this list? He lists tongues first, and he does that on purpose because he's putting them on notice. I know this is your preferred expression of spirituality, and I'm coming at it right now. I'm about to come after it. Notice in the last chapter, remember he listed tongues last in each of his lists, and he was doing that on purpose too. He was making a point. He was kind of demoting tongues back to where it belonged. It's not elevated above the other gifts. It's not some special confirmation of salvation. It's just like any one of the other gifts, and some people will have it, and some people will not right? So he's normalizing it. So he's making a point again that he's about to come after their preferred gift. He's just putting them on notice. Now, for our community, for our church family, I don't think tongues is it for us. Would that be fair to say? Like that's the one that Paul needs to put us on notice for and come after? If it is in pockets of our church family, like I'm just unaware and you're going to have to tell me later, but I don't think that's what Paul's going to put us on notice for. So I would just ask you, like, what is it? What does Paul need to put us on notice for? I mean, sincere question. What does Paul need to put you on notice for or me? I don't know. I have a couple ideas. I think for us, they tend to do with gifts that we associate with preaching or teaching. In our circles, we elevate and esteem our preference of a sermon or a preacher's style or a teaching style we will elevate that over people, right? Because we choose a church based on single factors alone. I liked his preaching. I didn't like his preaching, right? We, we elevate. So I think gifts associated with preaching, we tend to elevate the way they elevate the gift of tongues so that it matters to us more than people do. Maybe, maybe that. Uh, if not teaching, preaching, I think we elevate gifts having to do with music or like the expression of worship, all the other things surrounding preaching so that our preferences as it relates to musical expression, which is very much a cultural thing, actually trumps people. We will choose a church or walk away from a church 
based more on musical expression than we will concern for the people who are there. I think Paul needs to put us on notice for those two areas. But honestly, for most of us, I think where Paul needs to put us on notice is this. Remember that list of gifts that we read now last week and this week? I think we prefer none of those. We kind of wish the lists were not even in the New Testament and they make us uncomfortable. I think that's what Paul needs to put us on notice for. Maybe that's what Paul needs to come at uh, us for. Now, we, we, we remember things better when there are images associated with ideas. So uh, here's the first one to help us remember this. Um, I think the way most of us receive this passage is just like this. Just like that. Look, for all the attention he's been getting this week, you knew he had to show up to church too. Like, you know it. I'm going to call this cessationist Bernie. Okay? Uh, we talked about cessationism a week or so ago. It just means cessationism is the belief that uh, spiritual gifts are not for today. Most of the spiritual gifts that we just listed. Most of us have grown up in circles like this. We get passages about spiritual gifts. That's not just our external part. And look, most of us are actually seated like that right now. Okay? Just saying. That's how we're seated. Um, but we're seated like that on the inside, guys. That's our heart posture. We don't really like the lists. We're uncomfortable with them. Or we, we just, we want them to go away. We, we don't pursue spiritual gifts. We don't pray that the Spirit would gift us. Like we are, there is, we are cessationist burning. Even if you're not a cessationist, like this is, this is our heart posture towards the Spirit's uh, gifts for the common good. So there's cessationist Bernie. That's one tendency that Paul need to come at, needs to come at. Here's another maybe that's present in our family. I don't know. This is crazy Bernie. And I'm not making that up. That's actually one of his nicknames. And it was actually the headline of the article that I, I took this picture from. Crazy Bernie. Crazy Bernie. Um, and I'm a Vermonter, fellow Vermonter, so we can talk about each other. We're family. Bernie and I are related somewhere, no doubt, along the line. So I'm going to call crazy Bernie hyper-charismatic Bernie. Uh, charismatic's good. Uh, that's related to the word grace or gift. It just means that you believe the Holy Spirit has given these gifts for the common good. But then there's the stream of hyper-charismatic Christianity that is, again, using these gifts as a confirmation. They're a source of controversy. They're a source of competition. Uh, they're a source of, of comparison. And so maybe Paul needs to come at that in our heart this morning. Maybe that's our posture. We look around and we see a bunch of cessationist Bernies and immediately we're comparing right? Immediately we're judging. Immediately uh, it's a competition for us, right? And we're forgetting that Jesus gives gifts through the Spirit to some members of the family, and he gives other gifts to other members. So it's going to be different for everybody. So my expression, I can't expect that Bernie to be ex expressing like I am, right? So I think those are our two extremes. And I think, this, I think Paul is going to come at both of those for, he's got to, because neither of those are healthy expressions of faith in Jesus, there's a third Bernie, and this is the more excellent way that Jesus wants to show us this morning. I'm going to call him Christocentric Bernie. Just normal Bernie, happy Bernie, smiling Bernie, not crazy and not all withdrawn and closed off to what the Spirit would do. Like you'd sit down and have a meal with this Bernie, um, this guy. And this is Christocentric Bernie. And here's what Christocentric Bernie does. He admits that we don't take this as seriously as Paul did. We don't take this conversation as seriously as the Spirit wants us to. And here's what I mean. Look at verse 1. If I have tongues but not love, Paul says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, you would think it would be easy to understand, but man, that, that sentence is 2,000 years old and uh, people, like, we just don't necessarily know what it means to be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, let me just kind of give you what the commentators would say. Some people think this language refers to a large bronze acoustic vase that was used for ampli amplification in, like, these stone amphitheaters that they would have. So basically, he's talking about a speaker, but a speaker that's only able to project, like, the echoey, hollowy, uh, bassy kind of sound and nothing else. So it's, it's empty and it's hollow, just reverberation, nothingness. It's possible. Or Paul's just simply saying like at face value, look, if you have all the gifts but no love, you're nothing more than loud clanging, which was 
possibly being associated with their pagan worship. They would use some of these sounds in their pagan worship gatherings. So he's just saying, look, nothing's changed. You're just like you were before you were Christians. The absence of love with all these gifts is just like your paganism. That's possible. Um, I think it's also possible that he's just saying, like, when I read that, I, I, I hear and feel awful sound. Like, when I see that sentence, I immediately think of sounds that grate my physical being. Like, what is that for you? Mine would be, yes, oh, dog. I, I wanted to bring a chalkboard in here. Like, fingernails on a chalkboard. Or, like, certain metal on concrete. Or, I mean, I don't know. What else we got going on? Sounds that you can't handle. I mean, chewing with an open mouth is right up there with fingernails on chalkboard. Just got to say that. <laughs> Honestly, like being in the same room as any member of my family, chewing a, they're chewing cereal even with their mouth closed. Like, I got to get up and leave. Like, I just can't handle the noise. I'm working with, it, with my counselor. Gonna, I think kind of that's what Paul's saying. That's the effect that we have on people when we're crazy Bernie and we're love deficient. But that's the effect that you have on people when you're cessationist Bernie and you're just cold. And your profession of faith is just ringing empty. At best, at worst, it's actually pushing people away from the gospel. Like that's what Paul's saying. Verse two, he says, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith, but I don't have love, look, I am nothing. It leads my soul to this place of nothingness, death, not life. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, I have no love. I gain nothing. There's nothing gained for me and there's nothing gained for the family or for anybody else. There's no common good. So if we have all the gifts, but we are love deficient, we produce nothing, we gain nothing, we are nothing. So again, to contextualize to us right now today, our two, I think our two primary problems is we don't even think about these gifts. Like we tend to be cessationist Bernie. That's us in that picture. And so our self-centered expression of spirituality is not actually one of these gifts on the list. Our self-centered expression of spirituality actually is our isolationism or our individualism. We, we are, man, just our Western expression of Christianity is so individualistic and so isolated. Maybe we attend a church, but our guard is up and we're not relationally engaged. Or maybe we don't participate in the life of a church at all. Oh, but maybe we do, but again, we just show up, but there's no real relational engagement, no real relational depth. We're not letting other people in and we're not pressing into other people. That would be a self-centered expression of spirituality because now my Christianity, my faith is just about me. It's just about me and how I feel and my own growth. It's not about the common good. So I think that's our greatest problem. In the West, I think it's also our consumerism. The way we approach church, the way we look for a church, the way we settle into a church or not. Here's, here's, here's Western approach to church. My preferences are more important than people. Like that, We just have to be able to say that out loud. That is church in America. We market churches and we have niche churches, niche, niche, Quiche, I don't know, Nietzsche, like churches that like have these expressions that are so focused on a specific demographic or a sp uh, specific tastes or preferences, whether it's teaching style or music, that even the churches, even as church, like it's not we're, not, we're not just blaming Christians in general. We're actually talking about churches collectively. We're projecting this image that preferences matter more than people. I think that's a self-centered expression of spirituality that Paul needs to come at this morning for us, guys. And listen, our self-centered spirituality, whether it's isolationism, individualism, consumerism, or any one of the gifts on the list, whichever of the Bernies we are, it leads us to nothing and leaves us as nothing. No love, no good thing. And so now Paul wants to talk about love. Verses four to seven, he's kind of talking about how they're love deficient. This is the problem. And so now he's gonna, he wants to talk about the very thing they're deficient in, and that's love. And I want you to know as we get into verses four to seven, it's not like Paul's pulling this word out of a cultural, uh, like cultural usage and there's no real definition for it. Paul knows exactly what he means when he says love. And here's what he means. This is from Romans 5, 6. He says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, here's, here's love. When we deserved kindness the least, right? When we deserved it the least, the Father turns 
toward us for our good. That's, that's Paul's baseline definition of love. Undeserved kindness where the Father turns toward us when we actually deserve judgment, but he shows us kindness, right? That's Romans 5, 6. Romans 8, 31, we read this, that God is for us. See those words right there? If God is for us, meaning he, he is for us, he's for us, he's for our good, that is love too, being for another. And then we know from 1 John, why, why, why is love present within us and why do we love other people? What is the source of that love? What do we learn in 1 John? We love because he, he is the source and the, the first cause, if you will. That's not, it's not something that's present within us apart from God giving us something. We love because he first loves us. So others-oriented spirituality, if we're going to change, it's going to be rooted in and shaped by God's love for me. Now, some of you love the Greek words behind uh, the word love in the New Testament, for those of you who love it, which word do you think this is right here? Okay, agape, right? Agape. Agape is a self-sacrificing, self-giving love for the good of another person. So to keep that in the context of spirituality, it would be an expression of my gifts for the good of another person. But really what we're talking about is it's just relational presence. Like agape love lived out in the life of the church would be, look, I choose to be present with you and I choose to be relationally engaged with you because I understand that it's the Holy Spirit working through me for the common good and working through you for the common good. So absent relational presence, that common good can't be known, right? So that's what agape leads us to. Agape love is a warm regard for and interest in another person. Now notice verses four to seven start out this way. Love is, so we know we're about to get a description, but love is not described by adjectives as it should be, right? Back to my grammar lovers, love is a, what part of speech? Is it? Noun? What is it? Really? Are we going to have this argument right now? Maybe it could be either. Love's a noun, part of speech, right? I'm not wrong, right? Okay, it's a, it's a noun, so we should be expecting some adjectives to describe this noun. Here's why we think it's a verb, because it's described by what? Nothing but verbs, 15 of them actually here. Love is described by 15 verbs. It's an action. So what we're not, we're not talking about feelings. There's not a command here to feel a certain kind of way, which is good for us because our feelings are all over the place, aren't they? It's not a command to, um, to an emotion, right? Because our emotions are all over the place. It's not about feeling a certain kind of way. It's about doing. It's about a posture. It's about action. So let's look. Let's look. First, love is patient. That simply means that love passively, it's, it's kind of, patience is passive. This is not an active thing yet, but it's me bearing up under your provocation. You can chew your cereal with your mouth open all day long, Right? I'm bearing up without complaint. That's what it means. Someday you'll change. Maybe. But in the meantime, I'm not hounding you because you can't close your mouth when you chew your cereal, right? It's bearing up under provocation without complaint. It's waiting, or the awesome word in the Bible would be long-suffering. This is, this is long-suffering. Love is patient. Love is kind. Uh, this second description pairs with the first one, patience, where patience is passive. Love is kind is active. So while I'm bearing up under the suffering of your open mouth and your cereal chewing, right, while I'm passively, patiently suffering, waiting, love is kind is what I do while I'm patient. Kindness is active goodness while patiently enduring or suffering. So I'm working for your good, even though the way you're doing whatever you're doing is provoking me in some way in my spirit, I'm still resolved to work for your good while I'm enduring the suffering. Love does not envy. Simply means there's no jealousy or rivalry in the family, right? No jealousy. Love does not boast. We could word, add the words on self. Love does not boast on self, but you better believe that love boasts on Jesus and our Father all day long. Like, Christians are bragging people. It's just that our bragging has been reoriented off of ourselves, rebels, and onto the one who created us. So we brag, 
We brag, but we're not boasting about ourselves, we're boasting on Jesus, and you better believe we'll brag on our family members. I will affirm you to other people all day long, and I will commend you to other people all day long. I'll commend any evidence of God's grace in you. In fact, we can do this with people who are not in the family, those who are uh, not yet in the family, even though many areas of their lives are in rebellion. Anytime we see anything commendable, anything that is a reflection of the Imago Dei, any evidence, we can commend that in anybody, right? So we can brag, just not on self. Love is not arrogant, meaning I don't have an inflated view of myself. There's some humility. I exist to serve, and I don't have to be recognized. Love is not rude, meaning my words and my actions will be considerate of you and yours of, of me. So I find out what you're sensitive to, and I find out what you've struggled with, and I find out what triggers you. And out of love for you, I choose to um, adjust. And this is not being disingenuous. This is not about being fake. This is about being kind and loving. So I find these things out so that when I'm interacting with you, I can speak to you and interact with you in a way that's life-giving and not life-draining. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. No explanation needed, right? Doesn't have to be my preference. In fact, let's go with your preference. Even though I'd rather do it my own way, that can die. For your good, we'll go with your preference. Love is not irritable, meaning it's not easily angered, it's not easily annoyed or brought to anger by your open mouth cereal, uh, cereal chewing, right? Your imperfections. Uh, love is not resentful, this one, I, man, this is, this is, this is, this one kills me because my personality and my temperament and my life experiences, this is not an excuse. I'm just confessing what I struggle with. I'm inclined to be the record keeper relationally. So love is not resentful. That's where some of your translations might say it keeps no record of wrong. There's no bookkeeping. There's no journaling, no diary on your, um, your, the things that you have done against me. So love absorbs wrongs without plotting retaliation. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. In other words, uh, I'm not going to talk about your junk with other people. That's, that's kind of a way of talking about gossip. The, the, you've got junk and I've got junk, but I don't rejoice in my own and I don't rejoice in yours. So the way that I choose not to rejoice in yours is, I'm not talking to other people about your, your junk. That's what love does. Love rejoices with the truth. Uh, I love this word. The word truth can also be translated justice. So love is glad when justice is known for all people. And guys, I just want to, this is not a sermon about systemic injustice. We talked about that a little bit over the summertime, but we, we just need to bring this up again. Love cares about justice. And so the posture of a community of followers of Jesus should not be dismissive to claims of systemic injustice. Even if we can't see it, and even if we haven't experienced it, God forbid that we reject another person's claim to systemic injustice. Love, on the other hand, would posture ourselves to listen and to be empathetic and to lean in and to be part of, of working toward justice for anybody who has not known justice, right? In fact, again, another sermon, but the gospel readily acknowledges systemic injustice in our broken world. Just read Ecclesiastes. So love is glad when justice is known by all people. Uh, the next four are a grouping. The last four are a grouping. Uh, notice each one of them have something in common. They, they all say all things, right? Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, right? It all says that. Um, meaning, here's what it means. There's no limit to love or that love will always posture itself this way. So in other words, love bears all things simply means love always perseveres. It always presses on the extra mile. Love believes all thing is Paul's way of saying that love never loses faith in a person or a situation, not because people deserve that amount of faith or situations deserve that amount of faith, but because where's our faith rooted? Not people, but in Jesus. And so that's why, why the faith, the, the, that's why it perseveres. We can keep pressing because it's rooted in Jesus. Love hopes all things. So love never loses hope, again, because it's rooted in Jesus, not people. If your hope's rooted in people, it's already dead. It's just already dead. 
right? It'll be, it'll be a roller coaster ride your whole life. But when your love is rooted in Jesus, you are free then to love towards people who are profoundly imperfect and maybe even wounding you without losing hope. Again, because your, your hope's not in them or their, their performance, it's in Jesus. And love endures all things. Just again, Paul's way of saying love always perseveres. It goes the distance and it doesn't tap out. Now guys, look, I got it. Jesus is the only one who has ever perfectly loved this way. Yeah? I've not wanted to preach this sermon this week because my life is tragically flawed right now in some of these areas as it relates to love and some people in my life. Um, I fall short daily. I fall short. Um, Like, how about you when we read that list? How does it leave you feeling? Kind of wrecked, right? A little bit wrecked, maybe a lot wrecked. Guys, we fall short. So the aim in reading through this list is not to heap shame or guilt on anybody. We're not beating each other up with this. Our aim is to lead us to the point that we can willingly look at this list and realize that I, I, I fall short, I'm tragically flawed, and so it leads us to repentance, like acknowledging to God, I, I understand this is what I need to aspire to, but this is, this is, I fall short in so many ways. So it leads us to repentance, repentance and more dependence upon the Spirit. In other words, what have we already learned about love? Where's it come from? God, why do we love people? Because God's already loved us, right? So there's this sense in which love is something given to us and cultivated within us more than it is something that I am or something that I do on my own. So religion would give you a list and say, okay, go love people in all these ways and here are the five steps to be a more loving person. The gospel, on the other hand, would look us in the eyes and saying, we really suck. We really suck. But God wants to love people like this through us And so the solution is not to build a list or to make more resolutions. The solution is to run back to the Spirit, confess the ways in which we fall short, and to ask Him to please cultivate this kind of love in my heart so that I can love the people it is, frankly, impossible for me to love right now because no list will change your heart and no list will make another person easier to love. Only the Holy Spirit can do that, right? So it's repentance, it's running to the Spirit, it's exercising this dependence. Please form this in me. And guys, honestly, it's about reconciliation. Because we need to be able to look at that list and realize that there are people in this room, people in my life that I've not been loving like this. And that's been leading to nothingness, right? It leads to death and not life. And so it leads us to the point that we would go to those people and seek out reconciliation with, with them. Our lovelessness leads to increasingly self-centered spirituality, self-focused and consumeristic, but others-oriented spirituality rooted and and shaped by God's love for us leads to every good thing for this family. Now, all along, we thought this passage was about a wedding, right? All along, you thought this passage was about marriage. Have you heard this passage read at a wedding? Seen it on Hallmark cards, right? Seen it on like embroidered, things that grandmothers and old ladies give you after you get married, right? That's the only place we ever, it's not about marriage. This has nothing to do with marriage, nothing. Now, of course, the principles are transferable. So yeah, we can talk about it as it relates to marriage. But when Paul wrote this, he's not thinking marriage. This is not a wedding passage. Who knew that this passage was meant for life together as a church? This passage describes our father's intent for the culture of his family, our family. It describes his intent for our commitment to each other and the common good for us. In other words, in all the ways that we've made this passage about marriage and how sacred love is in marriage, which it is, but that's not what this passage is talking about, we need to be able to take that over to our understanding of church and understand that our father's intent is the way that we would treat each other and the culture of this would be so sacred the passage that we thought has been about weddings all along is about actually about your, your relationship and yours with me and ours collectively. This is for us, family. This is ours. Love says that I will choose to be present here. It's a priority. I will choose to be present with you relationally so that the Holy Spirit can work through me, his gifts, for your good. Guys, every season of life, we need this. Every season of life. In my teens, um, so in every season of life, we should have a list, there should be a, 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 we could come up with a list of names of people who are 
relationally present with me in this way and names of people that I am choosing to be relationally present with uh, intentionally. So this will not happen for you in your three years in Okinawa if you choose not to be relationally engaged in the life of the church. This will only come true for you as you are relationally engaged with people. Uh, so I could just rattle off some names from my teenage years. Doug Nichols, he was a small town cop who chose to disciple me and other young men in junior high and senior high, even though during retreats we would fill his shoes with white rain shampoo, remember the brand, and would leave excessively filled water balloons in his sleeping bag. That's how we treated Doug. Doug postured himself for our good. There was Greg and Anna Boyle, a graduate student with a full-time job and young kids who poured into my life and the lives of other young men and women in our church. There were Darren and Beth White and Carl Hefka, the UPS driver who would be out on his route until seven, eight o'clock at night and then show up at this small college gym to bench press with, because that's all teenage boys do when we go to the gym, bench press and curls, right? And he would show up and bench press and curl with us so that he could talk about Jesus. And there was Brett and Nicole Bixby, another young couple who would pour themselves into my life through my teenagers, and I could keep going. And guys, the reason I persevered with Jesus is Doug and Greg and Ann and Darren and Beth and Carl and Brett and Nicole. People are the reason I persevered. You need the church, and the church needs you. And you need me to wrap this sermon. So here we go, verses 8 to 13. Love never ends, but your gifts will, so we need to focus on what will endure. Guys, your gifts are temporary. All of our gifts are temporary. Love is forever. That's what verse eight says. Love never ends, ever. Love will never end. It'll never go anywhere. As for prophecies, they're gonna pass away, temporary. As for tongues, they're gonna cease. They're gonna go away. As for knowledge, uh, it will pass away. Not, now, not knowledge in the sense of facts and information. That's, that's, we're not anti-knowledge. Remember the gift from last week, we're talking about a spirit's work to give you knowledge that you didn't otherwise have, right? So we're talking about that, like the need for that is going to go away. Now, it's not just those three gifts that are going to go away. These, these three are given representatively of all gifts. This is Paul's way of saying all gifts from the spirit are temporary. Well, why? Why are they temporary? Look at verse nine. Paul says, we know and we prophesy in part, so right now we only know in part, right? But when the perfect comes, all of those things that we have in part will pass away. We're, gonna, we're not gonna need them anymore because the perfect will be present. In other words, this is Paul's way of saying the perfect isn't here right now, so we have the gifts or the partial. And so then the question is, what is the perfect? What's he, what's he talking about? What is the perfect? There are probably three options that you could consider here. Some people think that the perfect is the completed Bible. So Paul meant that the gifts would only be around until the New Testament was complete, and then we wouldn't need the gifts, and then they'd go, go away. Uh, but there are real problems with this view, one of which is this view tends to only focus on the miraculous gifts. Like when the Bible's complete, tongues will cease, healings will cease, prophecy will cease, um, and, and these will cease. But we're still going to need faith, and we're still going to need you know, these other gifts. But Paul never categorizes his gifts these way. So it's, it's not talking about the completed Bible. Some people believe the perfect refers to a mature church, right? So when the church has grown up into completion the way God intends it to, maturity, the gifts will go away because we don't need them anymore. The real problem with this view is, well, church history. And the real problem with this view is us, us, we are very immature and we're very flawed and we leave a lot to be desired. Like until Jesus returns, the church will never grow up into the fullness of what God's created it to be, right? We will always be, um, uh, we will always be less than perfect in this sense. So it can't be us. That's not happening. What's Paul talking about? I think Paul's talking specifically about Jesus' return, specifically, um, as the perfect, when the perfect come, when Jesus comes back, the partial will pass away. So I think we're onto something with that and let's see if the context supports this idea. Look at verse 11. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, thought as a child, reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. Now, how many times have you heard this verse to call like men out for being, just grow up, dog, like put away. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. Here's what Paul's talking about. Right now, he's, he's comparing time like now versus then. You see him do that in each of the verses. Now we're like kids. When Jesus returns, we'll be like grownups, okay? We'll be like grownups. He's just displaying a difference. So to be a child is not negative or 
immature. Paul would actually say, we are children now, so the gifts are appropriate because they help us relate to our dad and they're for the common good of the family. But when the perfect is here, when Jesus is here, uh, we won't need the gifts. So that's Paul's way of saying, we'll give up the childish ways. We'll give up the things that we had as a, as a child to keep us connected with our dad and growing as a family. We won't need them because he'll be present with us. And then verse 12, he says, right now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when Jesus returns, we will see him face to face. We'll see him. So all of the ways in which we need the gifts right now, because we're not physically with Jesus, seeing him face to face, those needs will be removed because he'll be present. So right now we know in part, but then we will know fully, even as I have been fully known, because Jesus will have returned. Right now we see Jesus dimly with the eyes of weak faith, and we hope for what is not seen. But when he returns, when he returns, our faith will vanish into sight. We won't need faith anymore. We won't need it. When Jesus returns, our hope will be emptied into delight. We won't need hope anymore. It'll be fulfilled in Christ. And that's why Paul says in verse 13, as for right now, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Even faith will go away. Even faith. We live by faith right now, but it'll be gone. And hope will go away. It'll be fulfilled in Jesus. So our gifts are temporary. They're meant to get us home, but they'll be put away. Those, these gifts will be put away because they'll be unneeded and only love will remain. So this is Paul's way of saying, focus on love by pursuing Jesus. That should be our focus. The Holy Spirit will take care of the gifts. So when we focus on that which endures, love, you will help this family endure. Guys, when we focus on that which endures, love, you are directly contributing to the endurance of every person in this room, right? That list of people that I rattled off, Greg and Ann, Carl, um, Brett and Nicole, Doug, all of those people, when you focus on that which endures and you participate in the life of the community, you become one of those people for another person. And when you cho choose to show up and relationally engage, there is a collective of people that are formed around you and their pursuit of that which endures is the very reason you will endure in Jesus and make it all the way home. It matters that much. So let's finish. Our big idea for the day, become, we become who we are as God's love for us leads us to increasingly reject my self-centered spirituality for others-oriented, self-sacrificing expressions. I'm not gonna tell you what you need to confess right now. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. He does that for every one of us, right? So you don't need to, me to stand up here with a bully pulpit. Uh, he speaks those gentle convictions to our hearts. So I think John is coming as one of our pastors now, and he's gonna lead us in a prayer of confession. And I just wanna encourage you, if you don't even know what to pray right now, just tell God that you don't know what to pray and the Holy Spirit will confess those things on your behalf.